2003, there was a story of a man named Rich Van Pham. He was picked up by the U.S. Coast Guard in his small sailboat about 15 miles off the shore of California. In the story, the Coast Guard picked him up and said he had no radio, no charts, and no distress signals. Not good if you're trying to travel in the ocean, right? Not, not a good idea. He assumed that he was headed to his destination, which was Long Beach, California, but it was clear that he was actually headed in the wrong direction. In the article, Pham said that he was trying to get back to to Long Beach, California, but had become lost and disoriented. This happens, right? People who get disoriented, they go the wrong way. I've, I've done that a few times in our building throughout the week. I've walked through a door and w- opened a door and go, oh, I don't know where I am. Where do I go from here, right? This is a big place. That happens to some people. But the only thing that is about this story is that this man, this had happened to him already once before. A few months earlier, the U.S. Navy this time had picked up this same man drifting 350 miles off the coast of Costa Rica. Not exactly where he was trying to go. His masts were broken, sails shredded, and he was 2,500 miles off his route. Guess what? His route was a simple 22-mile route that he was going to take off the coast of California. Should have taken him three hours. Fam claimed that the storm wrecked his mass, ruins the outboard motor, and he said he survived on fish and birds and rainwater. A short, straight route gone wrong, not once, but twice. Some of the local fishermen said the first time he got lost, I thought, wow, he's a survivor, and now I'm thinking he's got a problem. (laughs) Paul is telling Timothy here in this passage to cut straight the word of God. Cut it straight, young Timothy Rightly handle the word of truth. That word cut it straight or rightly handle actually comes from the word to make a straight path. It works as as a road worker would, would make a road. He was to make the road straight. To teach the word of God is as it is written is not heading in one's own direction, but rather faithfully teaching the word of God accurately and clearly. You see, Mr. Pham was going in the wrong direction and he didn't even know it. And unless someone had come alongside of him and and told him the way that he needed to go, he was lost. Paul is charging Timothy to direct God's people, God's people who are lost, God's people who who have not yet understood the word of God to direct them in the right direction to teach the word of God accurately, faithfully cutting the word of God straight. If you're going from point A to point B, we know this, and you're just off just one degree, you can end up way off of course. 
And if we're walking in a direction in a path straight towards the Lord and get off at just one point, we can find ourselves wondering how we miss the target that far in our life. This is why the word of God must be taught with precision and accuracy and clarity so that there's no room for false teaching. So the sermon this morning is to remind us how beautiful this gospel is, the truth of the word of God. It is to remind his people to teach it accurately and to remember that God's church will not be overcome by false teaching. Okay, so let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. We'll begin there. This saying is trustworthy. For we, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Again, some thought that this may be a hymn in which Paul is writing a well-known hymn in the early church. We summarize this into one point, which is the promises of God in the gospel are sure. The promises of God are sure. Are they not? Amen. They are. They are true. I never get tired of hearing about the beauty and the majesty of the gospel. Every time we open God's word, we hear of the beauty and the majesty of our great God that saved us by his grace. Paul has just explained why he is willing to lay his life on the line for the suffering or for the sake of the gospel. Verse 11, he says this. I'm sorry, verse 10. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Jesus Christ with eternal glory. Basically, he's saying how great of salvation I have received. I will suffer persecution, I will suffer abandonment, I will suffer rejection. Why? Because I want them to obtain this great salvation that I have obtained. Then in verse 11, starting in verse 11, he gives four promises pertaining to the gospel, two that are for followers, and two for those who do not believe upon Christ. The first of the four conditional statements is this. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. Does this sound familiar to some of you? When we baptize those who are buried with Christ and raised to walk in the newness of life. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we will surely be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. 
Does that sound familiar? The truth that he's stating here? If we have died with him, we will also live with him. This is baptism. This is a picture of our salvation. We are telling people why we believe in Christ. Because we died, our sin is died with Christ on the cross. We are dead to sin, and now we live with Christ. We walk in a new life with Jesus, with our sins fully forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness in the name of Christ. God looks at me and you as new. Mark 8.35, Jesus says this, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. We die, Christ lives. Not about me, about Christ and his message going forth from his church. The Gospel is not about living my best life now. It is about Christ living in me and bringing glory to Christ. There's nothing more that brings about more joy than dying to self and living in Christ. Giving up your life is worth it. There's a... um, documentary called The Insanity of God. I wholeheartedly wholeheartedly recommend it, maybe not for uh, young children, but I recommend it for, for you. It's on the persecuted church. IMB missionary goes across the world and he hears the stories of people and he asks them the question, is it worth it? Is it worth it to lose your family? Is it worth it to lose your job? Is it worth it to be thrown in prison? These are Christians who are living in places of persecution, the persecuted church, and he asks them the question. And they tell their story of God's faithfulness in the midst of persecution. It's a beautiful documentary. It's done well. Is it worth it, church? If we had died with him, we will also live with him. The next truth is also for those that follow Jesus. Verse 12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Romans 5, 17, Paul talks about this. If, for if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. We don't just identify with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection and living with Christ, but we have a part to play in the kingdom of God as people who go on behalf of the king and share the message of Christ, reigning with him. You see, endurance is a mark of a true believer in Christ. They endure till the end. Christ holds their salvation. They do not fall away. 
So just as the promises are sure for those who believe upon Christ, the promises are sure in a negative way for those who deny Christ as well. Look at verse 12 at the end there. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Now this is referring to a permanent denial of Christ, not a temporary failure such as Peter when he denied Christ three times, but he repents. And God restores him. This denial of Christ is a, is a permanent denial of Christ. 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us, for if it had been of us, they would not have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Christ says the same thing in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge them before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Peter, when he's talking to the The Jewish leaders, after Christ has resurrected from the dead, in the early church, Peter is proclaiming the gospel to these Jewish leaders, and he says, but you denied the holy and righteous one. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. He's talking to them about the denial, but in two verses later, he says, repent, repent. Therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. If you have denied Christ up until this point in your life, repent and turn to him. He is worthy of our worship and praise. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. That's why Jesus came. He came to save you. That doesn't take away from this passage. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Christ came to sacrifice himself on the cross, and if we deny that sacrifice, we must be punished for our sins. It is part of the gospel. God is the just and righteous judge who will punish sin. And if we deny the free gift of God in which is offered to us by Christ, then he will deny us. And the last conditional statement has more to do with the nature of God rather than the faithlessness of man. Listen, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. If we are without faith, he remains faithful. Faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Romans 3.3 gives more clarity to this statement. Paul tells us in Romans 3.3, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. 
Now, we all understand this concept, right? We've seen people in the church, people that we love, people that we respect, people that follow Jesus, that teach us about the word of God, and they fall away, or they they fall on their face, or they live in a moral lifestyle, or they do something wrong. Does that take away from the faithfulness of God? No way! God is faithful even in the midst of man's faithlessness. This is encouraging to us. should be encouraging. In the chaos of our world, God remains faithful. He will do what he says. He will judge those who have denied and rejected him and grant grace to those who have received him. This is part of the all-encompassing of the gospel message. So let us stand on the truth and the beauty of that gospel. I had to preach that section to get us to this section, which is understanding why it is so important to preach it accurately. Look at verse 14. Remind them of these things. What are these things? That's what we just talked about. And charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. This is our second point this morning. The church must handle the word of truth correctly. The church must handle the word of truth correctly. Look at that first word in verse 15. Is that the word we kind of have from our series, our title of our series, Reminders for the Gospel-Centered Christian? There is that word, remind. Guess what? We must keep the gospel, the truth of God's word, at the forefront of our minds. We are to be reminded of what? What does Paul say? These things. Not our own things, not our own personal opinions, but the very word of God, word of truth. Guess what? The opposite of teaching these things is what? Quarreling over words. That's what Paul says here. Charge them before God not to quarrel about words. You see, these false teachers were trying to take human wisdom and put it against the word of God. Throughout the history of the church, the attacks upon the church and the word of God stem, a lot of them, from human reason. Paul wrote about this, actually, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross... The gospel is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God 
The world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ and him crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly for the Gentiles. You're quarreling over words instead of preaching Christ and him crucified. The church is to preach the gospel, to rightly handle the word of truth. Verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. This is a gospel-centered Christian, a God-centered person who's teaching the word of God, who is approved by God. Guess what? Teachers, we should take the word of God seriously. And guess who are teachers? All of us. Make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, his church, making disciples. It's not to be taken haphazardously. I'm gonna read my Bible every, every so often and, and kind of just think about what it says. No, it, it's to be taken seriously. James 3.1 says this, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. The, the, the Bible, over and over again, talks to teachers about the importance of handling it correctly. Rightly handle the word of God. That word, rightly handle, in the Greek is orthotomeo. You guys may have caught that first part. Ortho, right? We get orthodontist. What did orthodontists do? They put your teeth straight. Orthodoxy. It's where we get the word literally means cut it straight. It, it thinks, think of like a, a surgeon and the exactness a surgeon must have to perform a surgery. It's rightly divided. The first day of uh, work for me after college, I had finished college and I got my first job and I'm getting ready to go to my first job and I'm, of course, I'm, I'm getting the haircut. Uh, last week I had a haircut. Jesus did that. He's a professional, so that's good. But this, this was way back when we were first married and my wife was doing my haircut. And she's, she's, she's a great person to do a haircut. But this was one of the first times she was doing it. So the haircut was done, it looked, it looked all fabulous, and I was like, hey, you know, it's a little, little jagged here in the back, will you, will you just cut this one piece or trim it up? Well, she thought I meant trim the whole thing up. So the, the, the cutters didn't have a guard on them. Whoa! Again, this is the first day of work. And I've got a huge piece of baldness right in the middle of my hair back here. I tried to cover it up with, 
I tried to cover it up with, with a Band-Aid. <laughs> Let's just say that we didn't cut it straight. They would use this term, cut it straight, to, as I said before, to make the road, the path, straight. And guess what? We as teachers of the word of God, all of us in here, make sure that people are on the correct path towards God. I'm talking about our children. I'm talking about people that we're discipling. I'm talking about people in our Sunday school classes, in our small groups. There is a... um, up front, we're going to have these available, but there's a bookmark. I, I put it on Facebook this week, but um, five elements for reading the Bible. It's just a, it's a helpful way to help us to read the Bible correctly. And, and the five elements are nothing mind-blowing, very simple, but helping us to hone in on what the Word of God actually says and not just taking it for what we think that it says. It says the Bible is to be understood as the very word of God. That's number one. Understanding that this is God's word to us. It's infallible, written by God, breathed by the Holy Spirit through man to us. We have to understand that first when we open the book. Number two, read it in a Christ-centered way. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's telling them about how the scriptures relate to him. So in the Old Testament, when when the lamb's blood is put on the doorpost and the angel of death passes by, that's about Christ. It's portraying the picture of the one, the lamb who would be slain for the sins of the world. The angel of death will pass over and he, they will be granted life. We don't want to miss that. We want to see Christ in the scriptures. Number three, the scriptures should be read within the context of the scripture. Again, rightly dividing the scripture. We don't just open our Bibles and say, oh, what does God want me to read today? Oh, Psalm 148, verse 3, mountains and our hills, fruit trees and all, all cedars, right? I just opened that randomly. But what does that mean? Well, we don't have the context to understand what it means, and we can get off base, off the path very easily if we don't know the context of who it was written, who's writing this book, why is it written, what is the context around that passage of Scripture, and how does it deal with the context of all of Scripture, the narrative from creation all the way to Revelation? How does it deal with that? And again, how do you know that without reading the Bible? You have to read it. Number four, the Bible is to be interpreted by the content of Scripture. Again, Scripture interprets Scripture. When we read the Bible, we read the Bible to help us to understand even more about this God, about Christ and what he's done for us on the cross. And so when we read a section and it's unclear to us, Other sections may be clear and speak truth into that section. So this morning we had that passage 
on verse 13, and I took you back to Romans 3.3 because Paul clearly explains what he's talking about in verse 13. So that would be an, an example of understanding the content of Scripture. And I don't want you to go, oh man, this is too hard. I don't even know what he's talking about. Read the Bible. That's it. That's what I'm saying. Read it cover to cover. Know it. Understand it. Grow in it. Number five, the Bible is to be applied to bring about life change. All right, so if you, if you take number four, it's interpreted by the content of Scripture. What did God mean by saying these things? What did the author's intent mean? And only then, once we have that intent, can we apply the text of Scripture. What we don't want to do is open the Bible up and say, what does this mean to me? That's not application. Application after we understand the content and what it means, then we can say, okay, what does, this, what does God want me to do with this text? That's application. It needs to bring about application in the lives of hearers. So there's some helpful hints. We have a bookmark here. We're going to ask that you come up and get one if you want one to rightly handle the word of truth or to help you in that process. Now, what happens if we don't handle the word of God correctly? Well, Paul tells us here. But avoid irreverent babble. He calls it babble. Think of a, a baby, gibberish. For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. This is the third point, final point. Stay with me. The church will overcome the forces of hell. The church will overcome the forces of hell. Guess who, guess who the author is of confusion, of chaos? Satan himself, the liar, the great deceiver. And guess what this text tells us? The church will prevail. Sometimes we look around and we think, man, look at what these people are doing in the name of Jesus. Look, look at what this person is teaching all around the world about Jesus. And we say, Lord, are you going to continue to let this happen? But the truth remains, God's firm foundation stands. Irreverent False teaching leads to godlessness. Get that. Godlessness. Ungodly living will accompany false teaching. The term in verse 18, swerved, it's an it's a archery term. You miss the mark. We understand that in sin. They swerved in the wrong direction. They got off the path. 
And guess what? This spreading of false teaching is destroying the body of Christ. It's deadly and it's spreading rapidly. He uses the terminology of gangrene, a disease in which tissue dies because there's a lack of blood flow to that part of the body. Guess what? When the word of truth does not get to a section of the body of Christ, it decays. Their idea here that somehow the resurrection has already happened, it was false teaching. We will be resurrected with new bodies and live with Christ. So what does this mean for us? In our day and age, in the age of tolerance and relativism, how important is it to clearly portray the word of God? God has clearly...